You've had an experience of sitting in a classroom and the teacher, the professor is talking about something that is brand new to you. And you're listening and you're trying to grasp it, but you're just not getting it. I mean, everything they're talking about is just not connecting. And, and the professor says, anybody have any questions? And you're sitting there in your mind with this, this little internal battle of, do I ask or not? Because inside of our minds, we're thinking, if I ask a question, I'm going to look stupid. I mean, isn't that the main reason we hesitate to ask questions, right? We don't want to look stupid in front of all the other people. And they turn and look at us like, you don't get that? What's wrong with you? Why don't you understand that? Everybody gets that. And so we have this little battle that goes on in our minds. And, and I mean, I remember when I went back to, to do my D-Men degree, you know, and I'd been out of school a long time. And, I, you know, I was older and I still had this fear about asking questions. It's just something in us about that. But I've found that what makes the difference, the times when I've asked questions and when, I've ha- when I haven't, is that when I am really engaged in the subject and when I really want to know and it's important to me to know what the person is talking about, I will take the risk and ask the question. But if it's not all that important to me, if it's not something that I, I really feel like I, I, I'm super excited about engaging in, I'll probably let it go. And I think Jesus and the disciples have an experience like that that we find in Mark chapter 9. They've been around the crowds and Jesus says, let's get away. I have some things I want to teach you. And so they make their way back to their home. And on the way, Jesus pours out his soul to them while they're there. They get there and he's pouring out his heart. He's pouring out his soul. And he says, I'm going to be, I'm going to be terrorized, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be tortured, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. This is why I've come. This is what all this is about. And he pours out his heart to them, and all of it just sort of goes over their heads. And Mark says to us, they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. But despite not understanding, their response is not to ask a question. And I think that's because they are preoccupied with something else. Jesus has poured out his soul. Jesus has said, this is how the kingdom's going to happen. And they aren't all that interested in it because they have something else on their minds. And when they get back to town and Jesus has them alone again, he looks at them and says, so what's on your minds? He asked them this penetrating question. You know, it's one of those questions you go, ooh, yikes. So, so what was going on back there on the road? What were you guys talking about? What were you arguing about? And I suspect they were saying, oh, you heard that. You weren't supposed to hear that. Because their answer is silence. We don't know exactly the words of the conversation that took place, the discussion, the argument. I wonder if it doesn't have something to do with what happened just a little bit earlier. Earlier in in Mark's gospel, he tells us that Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to the mountain. And on the mountain, Jesus was transfigured into probably something like his resurrection body. And there along with him appeared Moses and Elijah. Wow. These are, this is one of those experiences, this knock your socks off kind of experience where you're saying, 
Wow. In fact, Peter is so enthralled with this. He says, let's just build houses and we'll just stay here. This is awesome. Why would we want anything else? This is the apex of life right here. I mean, Moses, Elijah, Jesus. Wow. But they come down and Jesus says, now don't say anything to anybody until after I've risen from the dead. But, you know, wow, come on. You know, I mean, they, they look at each other and I'm sure they're thinking, you know, out of all the people on the earth, we're the only three people that got to see this. Those other nine losers that didn't get to go with us, they didn't get to see it. And they may not say a word like they're supposed to not say anything. But there's something about, you know, they're joking with each other. You know, they're saying, yeah, Jesus, wow. And I was like, what, what? <laughs> we can't tell you. I wish we could tell you, but we can't tell you. And, and, you know, there's almost this underlying sense of we've had this experience with Jesus that you're never going to have. It's too bad you can't have an experience with Jesus like we've had. And sometimes when we think about this idea, Jesus says they're arguing about who's the greatest. When we have this idea about who's the greatest, we're thinking, who has the, who's the closest to Jesus? Who, you know, who's most important to Jesus? Often, the question that arises is who's had the best experiences with Jesus? If you only had my experience with Jesus, you'd understand some things that I understand. If you only had this experience with Jesus, you'd be, you'd be such a deeper Christian. And we subtly send the message that we're better, we're more important to the kingdom than other people are because we've had these experiences. Sometimes it's about what we know. If only you knew what I know. It, the church has argued about everything when it comes to who's the greatest. But Jesus says, that's not what my kingdom is about. In fact, I think Jesus is saying to, to even have the conversation about who's the greatest is completely incompatible with the kingdom. It's not just that, that you're not supposed to argue about it. it. It's asking the question that's incompatible with the kingdom. That one of uh, anyone in the kingdom would be more important to God than anyone else. That anyone in the kingdom's experiences would be, would be more important and, and and better than anybody else's experiences with Jesus when they're all trying to do the same thing. The very question belies their hearts. And Jesus says, look, here's what the kingdom is about. It's not about figuring out who's the greatest. It's about choosing to be the servant of everybody else. I'm fascinated that he doesn't just say, be servants. He says, be the servant of of all, be the servant of everyone else. Let that be the defining characteristic of your life. And I think if we had to choose one thing that we might say, this is the defining characteristic of being a disciple. This is the litmus test of being a disciple. It's about our willingness to be a servant of all, like Jesus. It's, it's what happens when the Holy Spirit gets into us. It's what happens when, when we become followers of Jesus. We begin to look like Jesus. As we read in the, in the, in the, invo- in the call to worship this morning from Philippians 2, about Jesus, who being in very nature God, chose not to live that way to his own advantage, but became a servant.
Now, being a servant is, you know, you could talk around that for a long, long time. And so Jesus says, let me, give you, let me give you a picture of what it means to be a servant. He calls a little child over to them, puts a child in his lap and says, now, let me talk to you about being a servant. If you're a servant, if you understand what the kingdom is about, you welcome little children and people like little children. Because when you welcome them, you're not even just welcoming me. You're welcoming your Father in heaven. To welcome someone is to give them honor, respect. To treat them as valuable and significant. It is, it's the same word that's used in a derogatory sense about Jesus. The Pharisees come to the disciples one day and say, hey, what's up with your rabbi? Why does he welcome? Why does he, why does he encourage? Why does he honor and respect and give value and significance to tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners? That's not what religious people do. And Jesus says, yeah, they do. That's what my kingdom is about. And if you think about this world in which we live, there are all kinds of people in our world that subconsciously we see them as less significant than we see ourselves. I mean, children certainly, particularly in that culture, were easily dismissed and ignored and and, and pushed to the fringes. And quite frankly, children, that still happens with children. Children are, are neglected because... They can be. Children are mistreated because they can be. They have, they have very little recourse to do anything about it. And the same way with lots of people in our world who feel powerless and vulnerable, who have, who have no way to, can't think of a way to, to advocate for themselves. And Jesus says these people... Helping, nurturing, giving, giving value and significance to people who feel that way about life. That's your calling as a servant. I think one of the issues we wrestle with is that we tend to, we tend to view being servants from a position of power instead of from a position of weakness and vulnerability. I'm happy to see some trends that I see changing in the way the, 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 the church is operating globally. Because for a long time, what, what we saw was pretty much colonialism. But we're starting to understand that, that to be a servant is not just uprooting ourselves and going to another place and, and, and telling them everything about how to live, but it's engaging with them. It's recognizing that they have things, people have things to teach us as much as we have things to teach them. It's coming with that kind of humility that says, you know, I, I want to listen to you. I want to learn from you. There are things about, about life that, that I think you understand that I'm, I'm not sure we get. And in the midst of that conversation, we talk about things that we have understood and we've come to see. And particularly this is the case when we think about the, the church around the world. 
that, that we have as much to learn from people in other places as they have to learn from us. When we pray each week for the persecuted church, sometimes it makes me uncomfortable to do that. Not because we shouldn't, but, but because there is something in me that, that feels, feels inadequate to pray for them. I feel humbled to pray for them. I feel a little bit awkward praying for them because when I think about the, the kinds of things in which their, their faith is forged, the kind of life that they, that they live, the kinds of, of struggles and, and issues that they wrestle with every day because they're followers of Jesus that I have no concept of. I'm thinking, I, I hope all the while we're praying for them, they're praying for us. And, and, and that we are praying, as we pray for them, we're praying that God would, would give us the kind of faith that they have. It, Kenneth Bailey points out that, you know, when Jesus is born into the world, he comes in weakness and vulnerability. And he says his, his self-emptying is so total that he finds himself in need of the help of other people. And I think one of the reasons we struggle with, with being servants is that we think it's all about us and our power when in reality it's about us coming in vulnerability and weakness. And being willing to say we need others as much, at least, as they need us. I think sometimes it's harder for us to receive than it is to give. And we've gotten to the place where we know being servants is what we're supposed to do. I mean, we've heard it enough. But we want to be servants in a way that allows us to maintain control. And the gospel is calling us to be servants who release control. And as someone once said, you know you're becoming the kind of servant that Jesus wants you to be when you see how you respond when people treat you like one. I think that Jesus ultimately is saying that our presence as servants in this world is about the sh- how we shape the world. What, what our presence means in the world of chaos and pain and struggle. The world of the church and the world outside the church. And so when you get to verse 50 at the very end of this chapter. Jesus says to his disciples. I want you to be servants who live in peace. I want you to be people who live in peace. Be peacemakers. Be people who, when you, when you enter a situation, when, when you come into a circumstance, when you are present in a place, do you bring peacemaking or contentiousness? Now, I know sometimes we, we feel like we have to be contentious in order to, to you know, to, to help people understand. And maybe that's the case sometimes. But our goal, our purpose is... To be people who live in peace. Because we love each other and we respect each other and we care for each other. Even if we disagree. 
And it's not so much that we agree to disagree as much as it is, though we disagree, we agree to love. And we agree to be servants. And we agree to honor each other and to make each other feel significant and important the way that God created us to be. But you'll notice that he doesn't just talk about peace. He talks about salt. Jesus talks about salt at different times. And when we think about salt, you think of the usages of salt. You know, salt is used to, to season food. It, it, it brings out the flavor of food. Uh, salt is used to, to preserve. Back before refrigeration was common, people would preserve meat with, with salt. Salt is, is used to tenderize. I remember as a child, you know, my parents would buy, could, would afford, you know, the best cuts of meat. So you'd buy, you know, lesser cuts of meat. And my dad would always tenderize it with tenderizer salt. And, and it's amazing how it would break down the toughness of the meat and make it edible. But just recently, I, I came across an article that talked about another use of salt that I had not thought of before. There's an article that, in which the... the the author talked about reading some research from, uh, from Professor Diedrich, who was at one time the, the head of the Department of Soils at West Virginia University. And, and uh, this professor, in his research, did a lot of, of looking at the way in which ancient cultures used salt and, and, and agriculture. And he said what he discovered is that almost all the ancient cultures used salt to put on their fields. It, it helped to kill the weeds, and it helped to nurture the soil. And he said, this professor said, when I read the New Testament, and when Jesus talks about being salt, he said, I don't think Jesus is talking about the kind of household use of salt that we often think of. He said, I think he's talking about the agricultural use of salt, that it's fertilizer. Now you stop and think about that for just a second. Jesus is saying... You are the manure of the world. Now, you know, I, I've helped out farmers before, and I've shoveled manure, and we all drive around, and, you know, we understand the effect of manure. Nobody wants to be manure. We just don't. It's not even countercultural, it's repulsive. But I think. I think he's right. Because our calling as servants is to be people who nurture the atmosphere where we are. That our presence brings about fruit and joy. It brings about peace. It brings about life. It, 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 makes, people, it makes people better. It makes the world better. It makes people, helps people see Jesus more clearly. Because our presence is there and that's what servants do. And it's hard to imagine any descriptor that, could, that would identify more of a servant than that. It's not easy. It's hard being servant in the way that Jesus calls us to be. It's completely counterintuitive to how we typically think. But as Jesus says, if you want to be first, if you want to know a life of flourishing, if you want to know a life of joy, if you want to know life as you were created to experience it, this is the way to live. 
This is what you choose. And the thing I love about that is that it's not something that we do now. And then when Jesus returns, we won't do this anymore. This is, this is, this is an eternal principle of the kingdom. We, we are servants. And when Jesus returns, we will not stop being servants. We'll just be the kind of servants that we've been trying to be up to that time. Because the nature of the kingdom is relationship and love and honor and treating people the way Jesus does. And I think that's one of the reasons why Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, he says, look, people who have the opportunity to pack up their bags in hell and move to heaven don't want to. Because there's, heaven offers them nothing that they want. Because they don't want the kingdom to be about servanthood and selflessness and sacrifice and love and compassion. They want it to be about self. You know, when you, when you, really the issue is not who of us is the greatest because the answer is none of us. Because the only greatest is Jesus. And the calling of Jesus, the life of Jesus is immersed in servanthood and sacrifice and selflessness, even to death. That brings about for you and for me and the whole world flourishing, life, joy. And we get to be a part of that. There's an old Moravian prayer that came across this week. The Moravians were German pietists. Great, in, great influence on John Wesley and the whole Methodist movement. They were, they were praying people. In fact, you know, every fall we have this three-week, 24-hour-a-day prayer vigil. They had a 24-hour-a-day prayer vigil for 100 years. It's amazing. But one of the prayers that they would pray is this. From our desire for greatness, O Lord, deliver us. From our desire for greatness, O Lord, Deliver us. Maybe that should be our prayer too. Holy Father, thank you for your gifts to us, for Jesus. You know this is a hard word for us. We so often fall short. Give us your grace to want to be what you've called us to be. We might know your joy and your life, the grace of Jesus. Amen.